that lovely time of worship, but that feels a bit wrong since I jumped in there. But thanks for having me. I had a really good time there and a, what a brilliant service. Lovely. How adorable are your children? Do you do something to make them that cute and thank Jesus for Power Rangers? Love it. Um, so my name is Kathy. I come from um, Nelson. I go to the mission when the PowerPoint comes up. You'll see our lovely church logo um, in Nelson. My parents met at that church as teenagers and they um, got married there. And a few years later, I came along. So I was brought up in church like your children here. And my testimony is really, really simple. I was about five years old um, on the way to school with my mum. And I just asked her, how do you become a Christian? So we pulled up outside my school and we had a little talk. And then I prayed and I said to Jesus, sorry for the wrong things I've done. Please will you come and live in my heart? And simply, he did. And that that was it. Uh, Some people have really good dramatic testimonies. Mine is just that actually simplicity is enough. I asked God to come into my heart as five years old, and he did. And he has been with me ever since. And I've always known that I know that I know that I know that God loves me, that God is with me, and that God's plan for me means that I have to live differently to what other people who don't know Jesus live. And uh, when I was about 11 or 12, one of our Bible studies that we were going to as children's groups was about revelation and end times. And it was fascinating. I never heard any of it before. And I tell you what, I went home that day furious. And I spoke to my dad and I said, how come, as angry and as indignant as an 11-year-old can be, I was like, how come? I've been in church all my life. I've been to every Sunday morning group. I've done the midweek groups. I have done Jonah 20 times. I've done Daniel and Lion's Den. I didn't even know there was teaching on end times. What have you been holding out on me? I was cross. And I realized that the only way for me to actually know what the grown-ups were not telling me was to read the Bible for myself. So I had Bibles, and I'd always skipped in and out of Bible stories, but I was going to get serious into it, and I was going to start reading it. So I did, and I loved it. I loved it. I started reading about 10 chapters a day. I mean, I like reading anyway. I like words. I love books. So it was an easier journey for me than some people. My poor dad, he also loves the Word of God, but he's dyslexic, so you have to struggle. For me, 11 years old, I just couldn't stop. And not only was it interesting, and not only were I learning stuff that I hadn't learned in Sunday school yet. By the way, that was so ungrateful of me, because Sunday school taught me so much and gave me a really good foundation. But, you know, 11-year-olds, they get indignant sometimes. So for those of you bringing your children here, fantastic. I would not have my faith without my Sunday school groups. But when I started reading for the Bible for myself, it kicked up a gear. And uh, not only did I learn more, I realized that God was speaking to me through the Bible and stuff I was praying about, I was getting answers for in the words of this book. And it was living. And I know that's no revelation to most of you here, but... Uh, it's a revelation when you first read it, isn't it? And you realise this is God speaking to me. And since then, I've been in love with the word of God. And uh, I still get excited. And now instead of getting cross about what I don't know and getting angry, I now see it as an adventure to have with God. And I hope this morning's message will be like that. A little something that's really easy to skip in God's word, but is actually really um, an interesting and exciting talk. And forgive, my notes are really scruffy. I originally wrote this message... Um, when I was on maternity leave, oh yeah, I have a little girl, Orla, and I have a husband, Rob, she's two, 
um, and she's fantastic. But when she was about eight months old and I was trying to start preaching again after a long time off, she would not let me use the laptop. That laptop was just too shiny, too interesting. So all my notes were written down. And um, so I gave this message at my church when she was about eight months old. And I, I knew I wasn't done with it. So I've kept it somewhere I could grab hold of. Um, and I think more people need to hear this beautiful story. It came from a time when I was praying over a situation, which I still can't give the details of because my behaviour in it was so awful. But one of those situations where I was in the right, as I often am in my own head, I was in the right, somebody was in the wrong, I was trying to make it better, but my whole approach to it made it ten times worse. Have you ever done that, been in the right, but been so rough with people and been so stubborn and been harsh that actually your behaviour becomes worse than the thing you were trying to fix in the first place? Hopefully that's just me. (laughs) But that's where I was. So, messy situation. I'd hurt somebody who was originally in the wrong, but now I'm in the wrong. So I need to apologise and fix it with them. But we still need to fix the issue that made us fall out in the first place. Really, really messy. And I was praying to Jesus about it, saying, God, I get it, I've messed up here. How do we fix it? And a part of me thought that I had messed this situation up so much, and it was my fault, and it was their fault a bit, but that... It was too messy, too complicated. How could God make any of this right without rewarding bad behaviour is what I thought. And then I read this beautiful little passage of scripture. Um, It's really short, it's only four or five verses. 2 Kings chapter 2, and it's all about the waters of Jericho. We can have that slide up. The waters of Jericho. And I want you to remember as we read this passage, in the future, if you ever in a situation where you feel like you've messed it up to the point where God can't bless it, remember this phrase, the waters of Jericho. So in 2 Kings chapter 2, 19 to 22, it says, The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. But the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha has spoken. So a really short story from the Old Testament. Really easy to skip over. Just another one of God doing something good. Whatever. That's almost how I first read it. But then I thought, no, there's something in here that God wants me to get. So I started looking into it more. And when you read the rest of that um, 2 Kings chapter 2, you realise that the city they're talking about is the city of Jericho. And to understand how amazing this story is, I kind of need to do a little history lesson on Jericho. I don't know if you like history or not. I love it. I hope by the end of this morning you'll love at least this part of history too. So Jericho was the first city to be conquered when the Israelites came into the Promised Land. So Moses had freed the Israelites from Egypt. They spent 40 years grumbling, wasting time in the desert until a new generation rose up. And at long last, it was time for them to find a home to live in, the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. And Joshua was going to lead them. And yet the whole Israelite nation camped opposite the River Jordan. And across the river was a plain. And across the plain was the city of Jericho, the first city, the first obstacle to conquer. And the book of Joshua tells us that God told them to go out and take the city. And he instructed the Israelite army to march around the city every day for six days. And then on the seventh day, 
The people gave a huge big shout and they blew trumpets. And as they marched around the city seven times, the walls of the city just crumpled and the people swept in and destroyed the city. Now I'll just stop there for a second to go, does anybody else read stories like that? And someone else go, ooh, a bit harsh. Because I know I do. And it's a whole message into itself why God does that. But just to raise up a couple of thoughts, you know, it's hard for us in this beautiful part of the country, surrounded by lovely, good folk and pleasant faces, Lancashire folk no less. It's hard for us to imagine that people could ever become so, so evil to justify God saying, no, this city has to go. But it does happen. I think we can look at the news and see that happens. One of the most frightening things for me about um, the whole ISIS thing is not only that people in one land have been corrupted and filled with hate, but the call's gone out across the world and people are responding to that call to come and hate and come and destroy and come and kill other people. That terrifies me, that people can see what they're doing and go, I want to be part of that. But it happens. And that's the kind of attitude that was happening in Jericho. They were murdering their children to try and win the favour of fake gods. And it was a kind of city that was so, so evil you couldn't go near it, as were all the nations at that time. And other parts of the Bible tells us that God says if there were ten righteous people in a city, God would not destroy it. So God never does these things lightly. Also, this was a a nation defending itself. I think we can all realise in our heads, sometimes nations have to defend themselves. Sometimes nations have to fight. Our nations had to fight in wars in the past. I'm sure we all have opinions on which ones they should and which ones they shouldn't have. But it's undoubtable our freedom today has been bought at the cost of other people going to war. And that was part of this. And another good thing to know is that in Jericho, in the fall of Jericho, God did save people. God saved a prostitute called Rahab. And I find that interesting as well. When God is looking for people to save, he didn't save a really holy woman who never did anything wrong and was a paragon of faith and virtue. He saved a prostitute. She wasn't perfect. She wasn't very, very good. She just was good enough to avoid that judgment. And she saved her family too. So God is righteous. God is a good judge, even if we can't understand it. And the final thing, as my aside, is that we can take comfort in the New Testament. Christians are never, ever, 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 ever instructed to use violence against other people. Not once. Not to defend our faith. Not to make people believe what we believe we are told that if opposition comes to us if people come to hurt us we have two options we either run or we stand and witness so it's good to know that our new testament we're under a different times we will never be told to go and take out a city for god that's not us that aside god's judgment did fall on jericho and actually it was a huge symbol of hope for the Israelite nation. This was God saying, I am stronger than wickedness, and there will be a day in the future where God will sweep away all wickedness so that people can enter into a place of blessing, a place of life, a place of fruitfulness. And God instructed that the town of Jericho should never be rebuilt. It should remain rubble so that the people would always remember not to go back to wickedness. Wickedness can only lead to death. They were to trust in God and do what was right. In fact, it was so important that Joshua, in this next verse, oh, it's already up, you're good. (laughs) It says in Joshua chapter 6, At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Really serious. And yet, later on in the Bible, hundreds of years later, the king of Israel decides to rebuild Jericho. King Ahab, you'll know him as the king who goes against Elijah. 
Ahab is described in the Bible as doing more evil in the eyes of the Lord than those before him. And in fact, it records in there how this um, structure was rebuilt. So it says in 1 Kings 16, In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now that verse, I think, means that they did a child sacrifice to build this city. Archaeological evidence of the time around these cities have found children's bones laid in the foundations of the city. Even in Bali, they have found cat remains in the walls of houses. It was a pagan practice. Somehow people believed if we killed something precious and put the bones in the city foundations, we'll be blessed. So this would have been done with approval, with thanksgiving. This is a bad thing. So the city was rebuilt. Not only was it rebuilt, it was rebuilt and people were reverting back to the wickedness that God had already swiped away and dealt with. Which kind of brings us to where we are now in that first passage. The city of Jericho had been rebuilt, people were living in there, but the water was bad. Big surprise. There's a reason why God tells us not to do things. But this is where it relates to us. You see... God can free us from wickedness. He can free us from sin. He can free us from oppression. But over time, we forget how bad it was without God. And if we're not careful, we can brick by brick rebuild what God has demolished. You know, sometimes God can free you from an unhealthy relationship. And over time, you miss them. And you start going into those bad habits again. You start building up with them. But it's still not a safe place for you to be. And you might build a relationship, make amends again. But actually, there's no life in it. Or you could be freed from an addiction or a bad habit and over time you just start lapsing back into it. And you think, oh, it's not so bad, it's not so bad, it's not so bad. And then you're in the grip of it and there's no life in it. It's as deadly as it was before. We're all capable of going back and building up what God has destroyed. But here's the amazing thing. This is the point of this whole message, not to make you feel bad, is look at what God does when we do that. What does God do when we create a situation that is causing us pain and destruction and it's our own fault and we did it wrong and it's all in us? What does God do? He helps us. All it takes is for us to ask him to help. He brings life into the place we said we never should have been in. And just some of you might just really need to hear this this morning. God is more interested in helping you than he is in scoring points against you. If you're in trouble, he wants to help you. If it was your fault, he wants to help you. If it's not the first time it's been your fault, he wants to help you. That's who he is. That's what he is like. And you know, you can live your life feeling like, I should never have done this, and if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here, and I should never be in this place. Well, you are. You're in that place. God's bigger than your should-not-haves. God's bigger. And God can meet you where you are and help you in that mess. You know, my uh, husband was born because my mother-in-law, as a young woman, early 20s, she went travelling for two years, came back alone and pregnant, back to Ireland, back to her Catholic family, on her own and pregnant. Not good situation. And I'm sure her and other people around her thought, should have thought, man, I should never have been in this. But you know what? My life is blessed because of her. And because of the son she raised, then became my husband and the father to my daughter. When Rob was about eight, my husband, my mother-in-law met Jesus. 
and started bringing him to church. So he became a Christian as a child. She is a fantastic woman. She is a fantastic mother. God has blessed her life and God has blessed my life through her parenting. And I have a wonderful husband. So yeah, she'll never have God's bigger. God made a beautiful situation. I'm so grateful. So how will he help? How does God help us? I like in this verse, I want to unpack a bit of the symbolism that's in here. Because what does Elisha do? Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And then he pours it into the stream to make it clean and he pronounces a blessing. And I think that new bowl and the salt are a symbolic hint of Jesus and what Jesus has to offer us. Um, Jesus in the New Testament talks about new vessels. He says, um, if we look at the next slide... Yeah, there it is. Jesus says, No one sews a patch of unshook cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus is making a point of bringing in a new covenant. The Israelites had a covenant with God, which meant... We'll be your people, you be our God. If we obey you, we get blessed. If we disobey you, we'll be cursed, which is exactly what happened here. They disobeyed God, they built a city, the water was cursed. It wouldn't bring life. The terms of the old covenant could not restore life to that water. So Elisha says, bring me a new bowl. And I think that was Elisha saying, there's a new way coming. And where the old covenant cannot bring healing after disobedience, this new one will. This new one is saying, you put your faith in Jesus and he can rescue you out of your disobedience and into trust in him and into healing. But what about the salt? Well, you know, Jesus says to believers, you are the salt of the earth. And I think the salt in this image also is a little hint, a little slice of prophecy saying that at one time there'll be a people who will go out to bring grace to situations that people are in. And you know, that's what we are to be, the people of God, the church, people who go out and administer grace. Paul describes us so beautifully, if we'll have that up next, in 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I really like that verse. I like it because it says that us as a church, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation and a message of reconciliation, which means our whole purpose for going out there into the world as we live is to urge people with everything that we've got, get right with God. You might be in a mess now, but all it takes is for you to trust that Jesus wants to save you, can save you, will save you. That's all it takes. And we um, have an obligation to communicate that wherever we can, that trusting in Jesus will help. But we also have a ministry of reconciliation. And you know, I think if you want to go out and do God's work this week, one of the best things you can do is show grace to people who have made a mess. Just as God has shown grace to you. So that could mean staying behind at work and help the person who mismanaged their time and is now on the edge of a nervous breakdown because their time's run out and it's their fault, but now they need help. 
help them. That's grace. Grace is looking after somebody who is absolutely shattered because they've taken on too much. And you knew they were taking on too much, but they've done it and now they need help. Sometimes it's lending a fiver. Sometimes it's offering to babysit. Sometimes it's praying for healing over somebody who's wrecked their own body through their own choices. That's what grace is. It's helping people even when it's their fault. Now there's dangers with that. Dangers that could take up a whole other message. Because what if you show grace to somebody and they never learn? What if they don't care? What if they just do it again? I mean, reality, there's a balance to this. We show grace, but, you know, sometimes if you're always lending money to somebody and they keep coming back for more, they're not learning. You might be appropriate to say, actually, I'm going to stop lending you money because you are capable of supporting yourself. That's okay. I don't want to give you an unbalanced message. But let's just acknowledge for a second, God has that very problem on a wide scale. How much longer does God have to show grace to us? How much longer did God have to show grace to Jericho? God himself has to decide how long he'll keep on offering the grace of Jesus to a people who are determined to rebuild Jericho at the cost of other people. And there will be a time when God says, you know what, the time is up, and that's judgment day. That's a bit scary, isn't it? I have to say it for balance. There will be a time when God says, the time of grace is finished. I offered it again and again and again and again. Now it's time to take an account. So accept grace whilst it's on offer. Luckily for us, we as Christians, we never have to decide when the time of judgment is or where people fall in it. That's God's doing. Our job and our ministry and our mission is to go in grace and to offer grace as long as it's today. And you know what? Some people may abuse your grace and some people may ignore it. But for some precious people, people who are so worth everyone who ignores it, for some people it will be their turning point. For some people, you helping them will be the point they realise how God loves them. It might be the point they realise that somebody cares for them. It might be the point they realise that they have a hope for a future. It might be the point that some experience the healing power of Jesus. That Jesus will bring life into the very situation they know they should never have been in. And that he will turn it to good. And that's who our God is, isn't it? He's a God of grace. And that is the whole message of this morning. Just that God is a God who will heal the waters of Jericho. And this morning, if that's okay, I would just like to do two short prayers to close with. We'd like to just pray for those who are in need of grace. Maybe some of you here are in a situation where you've caused the mess or you've played a big part in it. And now you think it's unsalvageable. I want to pray that grace meets you in that situation. And for the rest of us, we need to be people who go out in grace and to take opportunities to be gracious and to take opportunities to help in the power of Jesus. So if that's okay, I'm going to ask us to just close our eyes and let's just pray. Lord God, I just thank you that you are not counting my sins against me. And instead, you just want to help me trust in you and not be ensnared by sin anymore, but to live righteously before you. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who in their hearts, maybe secretly, um, have really seriously messed up and are burdened by shame and despair over how this will ever get better. Lord, 
Holy Spirit, will you just come to me right now and affirm that you can make this better? And I pray that these people will see a real breakthrough this week. That relationships will be mended. That battles will be won. And Lord, that freedom will, will break forth. And Lord, I just pray you remove shame and just replace it with your love and thanksgiving for what you have done for us. And Lord, I also just pray for this fellowship, this lovely, warm, welcoming fellowship who are so keen to love you and worship you. Lord, I pray you will give them the power to be gracious this week. And I pray that you will lead them to people in this world who need grace, who need to be shown that even though they've caused problems, that you still love them and you still want to help them and that this is what you are like. You are the God who wants to help us out of our mess and into your righteousness. Lord, I pray that this church will have wonderful opportunities this week and that people will start coming through the doors as they receive grace from this fellowship. In your name, Jesus. Amen.